Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by, wait a minute, I'm, I'm only joined by one person, but boy, if it was only going to be one person, this is the guy. If you're in a lifeboat somewhere, if you're in a foxhole, if you're on top of a building and ready to jump off, this is the guy you want to jump off with you, Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. How are you? Uh, I, is is there a compliment in there somewhere? You want me to jump off a building with you? <laughs> well, yeah, um, because of my my last few seconds on on Earth, as I'm crashing to Earth, I want to be able to look over at you and say, "At least you're dying too." Well, that's true. Or yeah. the other the other part is like if I jump off with somebody, I might because I weigh so much, I might fall faster, and you might. <laughs> land on top of me and it would give you a nice soft landing that's always that old thing like if you're in an elevator and it starts to fall at the last second you're supposed to jump like right that like that's going to save you if you if you yeah. jump at the last second you're just going to land like a feather yeah no no i don't think that works i don't, I don't know much about try physics. that theory yeah i don't know much about physics evan that's why i majored in journalism but i don't think that works so anyway, we uh, we have our, our, our old pals, uh, David Moore and Callie Kaplan, are both off this week. We don't even know what, what vacation is because Evan and I, we work 24-7, 365. We're on the clock, baby, all the time. Right. It's just that but, our uh, off, my office this week has a pool and a hot tub. Yeah, Evan's very excited. He's out of surprise. Uh, you know, there's no baseball going on out there, but Evan says, oh, I'd like to go out if I could because there's a really nice place I could stay. And I got a pool now. So, well, I talked to Matt good. Bush yesterday. I'm probably talked to Jack Leiter today. There's minor leaguers here. There's just uh, there's no real major league spring training. It's it, it's so weird that we'll get we can get into this later. But you know, there was at least in 1995 during the sham that was replacement spring training. It was like okay, there's actual spring training. These guys are supposedly viably fighting for a job. Right now, this is minor league spring training. It's not major league spring training. There's there's not much in the way of like actual baseball competition going on, but we'll try and get a few things out of here this week, and then we'll uh, we'll come back when the major leaguers decide that they they're, they're ready to play. That'd be great. That'd be great. We we'd all like that, and we will talk about the Rangers a little later. But first of all, we're going to talk about the All Star Weekend. Uh, the Mavericks had their lone representative there, of course, Luka Doncic, and. He got in and had his typical eight points, and this is, this is his third All-Star game. Uh, he yielded the floor, as did pretty much everybody else, to Steph Curry, who shot, like, I don't know, 60 three-pointers in that game, set a record. Uh, unbelievable. I guess they just decided that we're going to let uh, Steph be the star, and and he's the greatest shooter in NBA history, and that's, and that's just fine. So I, I didn't have any problems with that. Uh, the, the highlight of the weekend, according to uh, Luca was when he got a hug from Michael Jordan. I thought it was great that Luca would say, he knows my name. It's like, well, pretty much everybody knows your name. They may not be able to pronounce it uh, correctly, but everybody knows your name. Uh, but it, it tells you a little bit uh, about that, uh, you know, that uh, Michael's last two years in the league, I guess I think his final year was 2003, uh, Luca would have been what? One, two, uh, something like that, maybe yes. three? A toddler. So I don't, uh, unless he was watching Space Jam, which is how my kids learned about Michael Jordan, uh, I'm not sure that uh, he could have ever 
seen much of him play. But that, that, I, it is like this is like the a, a measure of validity, right? Because like my best friend in Atlanta, when, when I would talk to him about my job, and he, you know, he grew up a sports fan, a baseball fan. Um, and I'd talk to him like, yeah, I was talking to this guy or I was talking to this guy. And he, always the, the, I guess the measure of how valid my relationship with the player is, is when he says, so he, what's he say? He says, Hey, what's up, Evan? He knows your name. So yeah, I, I, I get that. If Luca feels that, uh, that this actually gives him some validity, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that Michael Jordan has known Luca's name for a little while now. I, I don't think somebody briefed him on him this weekend. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I get that. I get the, I get the feeling of that. that. Yeah. He knows my name that the greatest in the world knows my name. Yeah, it is. And it was well, just nice to me that he knows a little history of basketball Yeah, he knows that he was a great player. So that's good. Well, I mean, it, it's seriously, is it, if like, if you know the to me, if you know the history of basketball, right. I think Marcus Johnson every year on his birthday posts himself dunking in his backyard. And I think yesterday he did it. He was 66. You know the history of basketball. Like you know guys like Marcus Johnson. You don't need to know the history of basketball to know the greatest ever. But I, I know what you're saying. He appreciates what Michael Jordan did for the league and what Michael Jordan did for, for, for the NBA really internationally. I mean, it, it, that era, Magic, Kareem, Bird, Jordan, that group took the game international pretty much. Yeah, but you can't you can't ever overlook these things. You know, I, I was always impressed. Whatever else you want to say uh, about uh, uh, Mike Tyson, he knew the history of boxing. He, right. he knew uh, he knew boxers from the, he knew Joe Lewis. He, he knew all the heavyweights, uh, and and I was impressed by that. You know, it just you know the, people quickly forget uh, uh, a lot of these players and athletes and historical figures, and, and certainly outside of athletics and. Nice I am always impressed by, by by figures that I'm talking to that understand um, historical figures in the game that that understand the, that that appreciate the history of the game. Yeah, yeah. I, I, because I think it, in a lot of ways, you know, one thing that's great about pro sports is is the thread, and when you when you can appreciate the history of the of of the sport, it 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 just it, it gives I think everybody a little bit of sense that, that you're more than just an athlete going out there and just simply playing. Yes, absolutely. Also over the weekend, Callie Kaplan, who was uh, uh, there at the All-Star Game and uh, also uh, uh, wrote a story about Luca um, and going into the All-Star break, she had 10 takeaways, which were very interesting. And, and besides the Michael Jordan hug, which was his highlight, uh, the highlight for me was when uh, she talked to Luca one-on-one -on -one about his um, – efforts to get in better shape in mid season, which is not exactly a great time to be doing it, but at least he did it. And he's eating better. Now he has a better diet. Uh, and I assume he's doing some other things too, to get himself uh, in good shape. And that's reflected in his play. He's been terrific the last few weeks. Uh, not only is he scoring a lot, but he's, he's not always scoring 50 points. Some nights it's 20 points and, uh, and he's doing whatever it's required uh, of them to, to play well, to win. Uh, they have shown remarkable chemistry this year, and this coaching staff has done a remarkable job. Um, I, I'm uh, floored, frankly, about what they've been able to do uh, defensively. Uh, you know what they have done, what they've gotten Luca to kind of realize about his game and how he needed to evolve to include other players uh, to get all these guys to buy in uh, on all of this has been remarkable because it didn't start out very well. It started out 
pretty pitifully. Uh, and then uh, as time went by, everything started to click. Uh, you know, I'm on record as not having liked the the trade uh, of Chris Stapp's Porzingis to the Washington Wizards uh, for just a couple of uh, mediocre bench guys. Uh, but I will say... Uh, they got a Dinwiddie for crying out loud. A Dinwiddie, Spencer Dinwiddie. That's a great name. It always rem- when I when I hear that name, it reminds me of the the, tr- the trade when uh, Jim Bouton wrote about this in Ball Four when he was traded from the Yankees. Um, all right, maybe he was being traded. Yeah, I guess that's what it was. And he said he was traded for Dooley Womack, and he said the Dooley Womack. Is that, is that who I've been traded for? Spencer Dinwiddie, the Spencer Dinwiddie. Uh, so at any rate, um, but what I liked about it was that I think it showed that uh, Mark Cuban, who said on the day that the uh, that Nico Harrison, his new general manager, and Jason, Jason Kidd were uh, introduced formally as the GM and head coach, uh, he said, yeah, I'm still the one who makes the final call and stuff. Isn't that right? Nico and turned to him and I ripped Mark for that, uh, for saying that. I thought, you know, you you don't, you don't cut the legs out from underneath your new GM, uh, by saying something like that. You know, you can certainly say, yeah, I, 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 I'm consulting on these things. Uh, but yeah, it's his, it's his call, what he wants to do. Um, and yet we arrived at this point after several occasions of, of Mark saying, it's ridiculous. We're not trading Chris Porzingis. Um, and you can say that that was just trade posturing and you're just trying to preserve his trade value and all of that. And yes, there's always an element of that to it. But I think it was much more than that because I think, first of all, Mark hates to admit he made a mistake. Uh, and, you know, the, the trade in the first place with the Knicks, uh, in which he, he still owes the Knicks a first round draft choice for Porzingis. Um, that was, uh, if not a mistake, it certainly wasn't a mistake to make it. You know, you, you they tried, it didn't work out. But it, but that's the thing, it didn't work out. We can we can argue about whether that was because of the coaching staff. I would have liked to have seen this coaching staff do more with him. But apparently, that was the call of this coaching staff, the coaching staff and Nico Harrison. That no, KP's not a fit here, and we need to we need to move on, and we need to try to make this work without him. And whether I agree with that or not. I applaud the fact that this coaching staff and Nico Harrison apparently have the say and that it's not Mark Cuban's say. And, and uh, I think that is a healthy development in that franchise. Well, I, I, there are a couple takeaways I have from it. One, I mean, when has Mark Cuban ever done anything in the traditional vein of ownership? When has he ever acted like a, like a traditional owner? Um, he doesn't. Um, I, I think, you know, you have to interpret Mark some and, and the context. And, yeah, I mean, he wants to assert himself in, in kind of a bruh way. You know, I still run the show. I still call the oper- the shots. But in saying that he didn't like the trade and in saying that he went along with the trade, um, despite the fact that he calls the shots, I think was his way of saying, I trust Nico and I trust Jason. And, and while it wasn't an overt acknowledgement that, yes, I stay out of basketball operations, it was actually, you know, an acknowledgement that I'm handing over basketball operations to these guys. Um, I, I, and, and I think the, the other thing is, 
I don't know that that Mark was posturing. I, I think I think he's a really, really incredible businessman. I think he's got um, a really good knack for marketing. But I think when it comes to these players, again, this is a guy. The, the, this is the fan in him. He loves these players. When has Mark ever wanted to trade a guy? When has he ever said, "I got to get rid of this guy"? I'm glad we got rid of this guy. This guy was a negative. He. He, he develops relationships with these players. Some would argue that he could be too close to some players. I think he makes it work. You know, my, Mark's got his warts. Every owner has its warts. You know, there's been some periods of time in the, in the Mavericks organization that there are some real issues there. But I think when it all is said and done, you know, what Mark has, has really done is, is kind of set a template for what a for, for what an owner almost should be like today. He does very much support his basketball operations people. Um, he does try and act as something of a public steward, knowing that he's got Dallas on the front of his jersey and that, that entitles him to make a lot of money. Uh, and, and, and I think that, that he does try and actually develop relationships with these players. He, he views them as more than just assets and liabilities. So he, it's an un, it's a non traditional approach, but I think he does a good job. Yeah, he's uh, he's uh, growing on me. I'll say that. Uh, what is it? Twenty he's years later, I mean, you know, the, when he first came into to the league, I was like, this just this personality just grinds on me. But I have to give him a lot of credit. I, I, what I've seen is is a guy who cares about his product, cares about his community, um, and, and, and cares about his players. All right, that's going to do it for our uh, Mavericks slash All-Star Weekend uh, segment of the podcast. You didn't uh, finish it with, yeah, that was a great point, Evan. Okay, all right. It's a decent point. I said right. it, I, I agreed with you. Holy cow. I mean, what am I going to do? You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not giving you an awards. This is not an awards program. Oh, Evan, podcast comment of the week. Um, oh, okay. Um, all right, moving on to uh, the Cowboys. Had a little disgusting development last week uh, since we talked to you last, um, and that was uh, Rich Dalrymple, the longtime uh, PR chief and gatekeeper to Jerry Jones. Uh, it was revealed that in 2015 um, there were allegations that he walked into the cheerleaders' chalk, uh, locker room at AT&T Stadium uh, held out a phone, took some video and, and ran out after he was confronted by one of the cheerleaders who said she recognized him. Um, he, his story was that he was just trying to find a restroom in that big old place. The only restroom he could think of was in the, uh, uh, Cowboys cheerleaders locker room. Um, and then, uh, uh, and the Cowboys had their investigation. Uh, he explained that when they asked for his cell phone so they could, you know, scrub it to see if it did have any videos on it. Uh, he explained, yeah, this is the only, this is my work phone. This is the only phone I have. I don't have a personal phone. Like, okay. Yeah. Right. We're buying that story. The Cowboys did. They bought it. Uh, and at, at any rate, uh, the cheerleaders settled for 2.4 million. Uh, the Cowboys paid that out in 2016. Uh, they just came to light recently. Um, this story had, has been out there before um, and uh, it's been investigated. This was the first time that the someone actually talked uh, on the record about it. Uh, and that's how it came to light by ESPN. Um, so, 
you know, uh, and Rich, of course, resigned uh, last month uh, before uh, all of this came out uh, and says that that was just a coincidence, too, that he was going to resign anyway, which no one buys that either. So there weren't any, very many good uh, storylines to develop in any of this. And, of course, the the uh, the NFL has said it will not investigate this further. There is a possibility, Don Bananata, who the ESPN reporter investigator who who wrote this story, I talked to him and he said it was his understanding that the Congressional Oversight Committee uh, is considering reviewing this situation. Uh, I, I think, uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen in any of this. The NFL has already announced it will not investigate. The NFL is up to its ears in investigations already and would like to just think that uh, this was good enough that Rich Dowerpel no longer works for the Cowboys. Um but uh, the, the question should be, uh, how much of this kind of stuff goes on in, in the NFL? Certainly, there is an environment around uh, the cheerleaders at these organizations. That's where it all started in, in Washington with Dan Snyder, where allegations made by the, the cheerleaders. Um, and I think that, uh, we, that the NFL promotes an environment around the cheerleaders that's not healthy. Um, and we have... Our old friend Juliet McCour, who worked uh, here at the Dallas Morning News and now works for the New York Times, in 2018, uh, in the middle of all of this stuff at, uh, with uh, the, the then Redskins, um, she talked to cheerleaders kind of across the landscape. One of them was a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. And it, it was, and as I wrote in that story the other day, I, I lifted that quote that she got from this former Cowboys cheerleader in which she talked about when we – when we appear in, at a tailgate or when we're in a luxury suite at Jerry World, you know, we are, we are expected, if, if they get a little handsy, we're expected to say to those people, oh, hey, or listen, can I, can I show you this over here? Or I kind of deflect the situation and certainly never confront these people. And you know why? Because they, they pay your, you don't even have a salary. But if, you, if it weren't for these fans, you wouldn't be here at all. So therefore, you have to just kind of grin and bear this stuff. And what she said, this cheerleader was, I wish that someone had told me that what you can see is get your hands off me. Security removed this man from this area, which is exactly what should happen. Uh, but I think that reflects to me pretty much the, uh, the attitude toward women, uh, especially women who are wearing uh, skimpy outfits and dancing on sidelines are, are treated in the NFL. And I think that leads to that kind of environment. I, I don't listen. I don't know what was going on with Rich Dalrymple. I've known him a long time. I, I'll have to say I, I've never had a close relationship with him. Uh, it was a you know professional relationship. Uh, I don't know him well enough to know what in the world he could have been thinking. If this was something that just a, a, a rare incident in his life, if this was a practice of some kind, I have no idea. I don't, we don't even know for sure that it actually happened. Of course, it's never been prosecuted, even though it could be. Uh, filming someone without their consent in a private place uh, is a felony. So uh, that that didn't happen. No police were called in this incident. So uh, that's a lot of stuff to unpack, and I've done that. So Evan, now what do you? What's your take? Um, I, it is a lot to unpack there, and I I mean the thing that just every time you hear one of these stories, again it's. Uh, the hard part for me is this clearly is all around us. It's constantly around us. You, you talk to 
um, uh, women who work in sports media, um, and they've been subjected to different levels of comments. Some people have come forward. Some people chose choose not to. Uh, the NFL, listen, from the time the Cowboy cheerleaders were unveiled, the NFL has taken an approach that that sex and sexuality sells. Um, they just wanted to make sure that it was to a point. And then where do you cross that line to where all of a sudden now somebody is is acting on that? And that's that was a very delicate line to walk. And it's a... It's a very difficult thing to do, and all I all I can say is that I'm glad that cheerleaders and team dancers and people around clubs now feel empowered to say, "Listen, I'm here for my ability. I'm here for my professionalism, and nothing else. You aren't going to treat me this way." And and that they've got they've got an ability to to take some action, but it's just disheartening to know how long we've kind of, for lack of a better term, almost turned a blind eye to it. You know, I, I think everybody, everybody knew that there were, there were some unsavory elements going on um, in different areas. And we, we just kind of, for lack of a better term, we just never actually opened our eyes wide enough to see it. Yeah, I, I tell you, I couldn't imagine being a, a woman working in in the sports field in any any phase of it. And I've known lots of women who who've done it, and I and I admire their uh, courage, and I admire their uh, ability to uh, to work through these issues. And and if, if one of them wants to say, "I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to take this," uh, and if uh, and I if I saw something that I thought was offensive. Then, uh, then I'm and I'm would back them 100 percent in whatever they chose to do. I would, I would hope they would would choose to speak out. Um, I got to tell you, and I've, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'm glad I lived long enough for the Me Too movement. I know that that has become such a uh, you know you know buzzword with some people, and they think, oh, it's just it's just a lot of bull. It's like, look. Maybe there's some of it that's overreaching. I don't know. That's certainly a possibility in, in any walk of life. That something there's no is over- absolutes, Kevin. Right? There's there's no, no absolute truths. There just aren't. Um, there's always going to be outliers in, in in every case and things that that aren't um, accurate. So yeah. But the, but the issue is is that there's no question that that women have suffered uh, because of this over the over the course of history. My gosh, there's been no more. People more persecuted than in the world than women, you know that that's just that's just a fact. And so, you know, I, I'm I'm always uh, chagrined to see women who don't go uh, along with this and who do who are for the status quo. And it just uh, it makes me feel bad. I you know we need to be constantly progressing and moving forward. You know, I don't want to go back to the way it used to be. I I, I never have, uh, and and I. I'm always glad for the improvements we make as a society and the things that we do and the, the enlightenment that, that uh, takes place. And if that bothers people, and I'm sorry, that's just the way I feel about it. I'm just, no, we, we can always get better. And I, I, I mean, I, I have, in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's really been, it's been encouraging for me to see the number of women on our front, the number of women that are, that are getting into the business 
but it's also so discouraging to me to see, and I see it at least once a week, somebody sharing a tweet or an email or a text that they got where somebody is critiquing them for the dress that they wore or the hairstyle that they wore on TV or that how can you know anything because you're a woman and when did you ever play football? And uh, it, it, it is an extra hurdle and difficulty for all of these professionals to have to deal with um, to overcome those inherent biases by, by, by the public. There, and, and there's just so many of them. And I, I guess that's the thing that, that punches me in the stomach over and over again is I just never I never really felt like it was that pervasive. But it is. And we get reminders of that weekly and now with news stories, you know, on a much grander scale. Yeah, there's no question about that. Uh, so anyway, we're, we're hoping that uh, we're going to move forward uh, with that. And hopefully if this if this cowboy story uh, grows any more legs uh, and we find out anything else, then good. Uh, we need to get to the bottom of, of whatever the situation might be. Uh, I'm not saying I want to see more of this uncovered. Uh, well, if it's there, I want it to be uncovered. But I don't, you know. No one wants to see this kind of stuff. It's a, it, it is amazing. Just, I mean, all we do is we stumble. It, it, it's impossible to like come up with eloquent words to de- to describe this, right? Or we just stumble over words because yeah. it's, it, it, it's so difficult to really fully grasp. We just stumble a lot anyway. All right. Uh, we want to talk about the Olympics. That's also, uh, which kind of... Uh, came to a close, rolled to a close. It was a, it was kind of a wild rollicking ride in these Olympics. Uh, the question of whether they should even, the U S should even participate in them to begin with, because it's in China, because of uh, the uh, doping scandal with the Russian figure skaters, figure skater, uh, the 15 year old Valley Ava, uh, to, uh, j- judging in the half pipe, uh, which was, uh, in the snowboard half pipe, which was hilarious, uh, to, to see, to see that the, the uh, analyst there, the longtime snowboarder, say that this score should get a, this is going to be the highest score ever. It's going to be a 98 for a Japanese snowboarder. And it came in, I think it was like a, I don't know, it wasn't even a 90, I don't believe. And I thought that this uh, analyst was going to blow a gasket in the middle of it. And then there was a story that a couple of days later about how, yeah, they don't even really know what they're doing on this judging. How is that possible that you can come to the Olympics, something that gets this many eyeballs and you don't have the best people out there available. You don't understand the, the, the whole Valieva question of how she tested positive before the Olympics, but she didn't have her time to have her, uh, you know, appeal. challenge appeal to the whole situation. So therefore we're going to go ahead and let her skate anyway. And then, no, I, I, and then, and then the, well, there's one more thing. And then, then the fact that, okay, so uh, if she had if she had finished in the top three, then she would have gotten to stand on the medal stand and got the whole nine yards. No, she then would they, not have. They would not no? have had a medal ceremony. Well, no, I think if she, if she no, they would not have. Okay, you're right. You're right. About they would that. not That's have had a podium. Um, I, I, listen, um, I think I said this at one point in time, maybe even on Twitter during the the night of the figure skating, the women's figure skating finals, is that every time I think about just how screwed up baseball is, and it's incredibly screwed up, I think about I can I can go back to the fact that the Olympics were being were taking place in China, a country accused of incredible human rights violations, that a skater 
from a country that was banned from the Olympics somehow was skating to win the gold medal, even though she had tested positive for a banned substance. There, there are so many layers of corruption within the Olympics that I think sometimes it robs the whole idea of the Olympic spirit. Um, and it's difficult for me to watch a lot of these sports, particularly the high-profile sports, without going to that mindset. Um, the things that I found myself enjoying the most watching this year were um, the women's cross-country skiing, watching Jenny Diggins. Um, I mean, that's a painful, painful exercise. And it, 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 looked inc it, it looks incredible. It doesn't look fun. It looks like it's nothing but, but pain. Um, and she won two medals, and it was it was a great story. Um, I uh, but watching the figure skating and watching the 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 end result of the women's figure skating, in which the gold medalist Anna Sherbakova of the Russian Olympic Committee, and by God, Kevin, at some point in time, you need to explain to me how the Russian Olympic Committee can compete, but Russia cannot. I still don't understand that loophole. Anyway, she wins the gold. There's nobody there to congratulate her. The silver medalist, uh, Trusova of the, so of the Russian Republic or, or the Russian Olympic Committee, is yelling, I'm not going back out there. I deserve a gold and I never got one. And everybody else is over there basically patting Kamila Valieva on the back, except for her own coach, who is telling her, how could you not be strong enough? It is... It is a drama. It's a melodrama. And it's, in a lot of ways, it's sickening to think all these are teenage girls and how damaged are they going to be from this experience. Um, I haven't paid as much attention to the women's figure skating in a long time. Gina wanted to watch it. So I got involved. Obviously, this news story cropped up. I need you to unpack some of this for me and explain to me what still is viable about the idea of the Olympics, not the Olympic spirit, but the Olympics, because it seems so corrupt on so many levels that I can't, I, I can't enjoy it most of the time. Well, here's the thing you got to get past, uh, just the whole idea of the Olympic movement itself and, and the people who are in charge of it and the, the rules makers and all of that. And all of that is just a, a bunch of hooey, you know, uh, these, uh, you know, I can I compare that as, as a as a public uh, father of uh, uh, four kids who went to public school here in Dallas. Um, you know, I, we had a lot of friends who who would no more have sent their kids to public school in Dallas than the man in the moon. And um, and and you know, I had one ask me one time if you know who made it seem like we were. Oh my gosh, I can't believe y'all are doing that. Uh, and 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 our our experience was listen. You know, stop watching television uh, uh, reports of DISD board meetings uh, and stop reading the stories about that, because that's not really what public education is. That's just that's just a bunch of idiots sitting around in a room yelling at each other. Uh, public education is walking into a classroom and seeing what goes on in that classroom, what goes on in that campus, what goes on in extracurricular activities and all of those things. That's what public education is, not what it is downtown on Ross Avenue or what used to be on Ross Avenue. And that's out on the Central Expressway. So and I, I don't want to say for, uh, beyond all that, Michael Hanahosa did a fabulous job uh, uh, reconstructing the the credibility of the district and uh, and 
hats off to him for that. Uh, but it's the same thing here with the Olympics. You know, yes, all that is a mess, but it doesn't detract from all of these athletes who have, and many of them, spent their entire lives aiming for this one moment that they get to do this thing. And so I respect that in the end. Uh, when I wrote about the Olympics and I went to nine of them, uh, I preferred the Winter Olympics. I never covered the figure skating. It was just impossible. Even I watched a lot of it this time to know a triple toe loop from a sow cow. I can't tell you any of that. They look like just spinning dervishes. I have no idea what they're doing up there. I, I, I don't either. I appreciate when they land and yeah. whether or not they made three and a half turns or four, I can't tell you, but I appreciate the athleticism of the leaps and the jumps. And, and, and yes. So, yeah, I, I don't know about any of that, but I, I liked all of it. You know, there, there were all things in there across the, the gamut. I, I don't know. There's something about watching the Olympics, as I said before. It's like March Madness. You don't have to know anything about this. You don't have to know anything about the teams or the players or any of that kind of stuff. It just comes at you. Here it comes. Here's something else that's going to happen here. Watch them do this. So oh, it's uh, amazing. I can remember as a kid watching ski jumping, and, and my brother and I decided this would be a great form of capital punishment. You just put a guy – just strap him on these skis. You send him down this slope, and then the Lord knows what happens to you. You survive this, pal. Good for you. You've made it. But chances are there's no way you're going to survive this. So, you know, I, I think it's remarkable what these athletes do. Uh, God bless them. You know, I, it, it's a difficult path for them. Many of them, after their Olympic careers are over, are a little damaged by that. And just for the reasons you just said, uh, they, they are awfully young. I mean, think about that for a minute. You know, this Valieva is 15 years old. 15. I mean, that's what, a sophomore in high school? You know, that that is awfully young to have that kind of pressure put on you, to have that many eyeballs on you all at the same time. Uh, I, I hope that she uh, has uh, some kind of life after this. I, I have no idea what happens when she goes back home or how she is back home right now. All right, that's going to do our Olympics uh, segment now. We're, we're just mowing through these topics. Now we're going to move to a little potpourri now. And uh, uh, first of all, Evan, do you, do you want to talk about uh, the latest injury for the Rangers? Yeah, somehow there's no spring training, and the Rangers still manage to suffer um, significant injuries. Uh, I expect that we'll hear within the next 24 hours a, a verdict on Josh Young and his, his left shoulder, which apparently he felt discomfort. In while weightlifting out in Arizona uh, last week. Um, he's been diagnosed with, with a labrum strain. Um, I, I think that when, when it's all said and done, it's going to come out as, as a more significant tear. Um, and I, I expect that, that surgery is a real likely possibility here. And even though it's not his throwing shoulder, this is going to be an injury that takes him out of the competition to win the third base job coming out of camp whenever camp actually takes place. Uh, and, you know, I, depending on who you talk to, um, it could, it could keep him from playing, uh, anywhere from three to five months. So, um, that's a, that's a significant blow for the Rangers. And the good news for the Rangers is they never traded Isaiah Connor Falefa. Um, they still have him. They have a gold glove caliber third baseman on, on him. The, the bad news is that, you know, basically on December 1st, the Rangers signed a shortstop and a second baseman that essentially at that point in time made Kiner Falefa um, expendable. Um, and on December 2nd, they could no longer talk to Kiner Falefa. So he's had three months of sitting there basically thinking he's expendable and doesn't figure into the mix per se. 
and now he's the starting third baseman. So this is going to be one of those situations that when camp starts, there's going to have to be some communication. There may have to be some mending of the fences with Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, and then he's going to go out and play the position. The other part of it on the competition level is I do think that at some point in time, Andy Ibanez is going to get a more legitimate opportunity to carve himself some some playing time. He certainly hit at a major league caliber. And the question on Isaiah has never been his glove. He's a major league defender. The question is whether or not he can hit enough to play in everyday position. And I'm sorry that, you know, a 670 OPS, unless you've got, unless you're surrounded by a lineup full of guys mashing, a 670 OPS is really going to be difficult to, to, to keep you in the everyday lineup. And so if Abanias comes out and mashes in spring training and mashes during the regular season in, in limited opportunities, he's going to get some opportunity to, to really carve himself a niche to play some more. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I, I you know, that was the thing last spring about Abanias. He was a little bit of a revelation, but you know, everybody said, "Oh well, he, you know, yeah, he hits, but he, he yeah, he's got no glove." It's like I don't I don't understand how we identify people this way. It's like if a guy's hit in the minor leagues, then I'm going to give him a little bit of a leg up over a guy who hasn't hit in the minor leagues, you know, which Leody Tavares never did, but because Leody Tavares has these wonderful skill set, you know, and and they've invested so much in him. We're going to give him more of a shot, you know, than we are of this. You know, I remember when Rusty Greer, all he ever did in the minor leagues was hit too. And then when he got to the big leagues, oh, what the heck? He hit in the big leagues too. I don't understand how we think that a guy, if he hasn't performed at the lower levels, he's going to perform. Oh, no, but he is going to do it at the big league level. I mean, I just don't get that. And, and, and yeah, just to back that up, I mean, if you've got a guy who can hit, you can always find a guy to play the last three innings defensively in games you win. You can always find plus defenders to do that. It's hard to find big league hitters, and it's still the name of the game. And if you can hit, there's a role for you. I would say on Ibanez, listen, as much as I feel like I, quote, unquote, champion him as a guy over the last year as much as anybody, but even last spring when I looked at him playing defensively, I was like, this guy can't make a throw. And then he played at the major league level and played really well at second base and in and, and, and the, the few games he played at third base. So you never really know until you got, you give these guys the, the opportunity. And I would say that, that what Andy has done hitting-wise certainly has generated him the opportunity. And I think what he did in his major league um, audition last year is only going to give him more opportunity. Absolutely. Um, all right. Uh, we, uh, we want to talk about a little bit. I, I, I kind of talked to Evan into this. Uh, I want to talk about the situation of former Mav, uh, Juwan Howard, uh, the basketball coach of Michigan over the weekend, uh, got in or started a melee uh, between the, in the Wisconsin Michigan basketball game when he went through the receiving line there after the game, the handshake line. And, uh, he was mad because something had happened during the game. Um, uh, and, uh, told uh, Greg Gard, Wisconsin coach, you know, he said something along those lines and kept, tried to move on. Gard grabbed his arm to talk about the situation. And at that point, Howard said, uh, don't touch me. He kept saying, don't touch me. Uh, and uh, and then uh, they were separated, and then there was some jawing going on. And the next thing you know, Howard reaches across a couple of people to slap 
a Wisconsin assistant coach on the head. Um, and uh, then, then all hell breaks loose. You know, then you got players running around and all kinds of things happening here. I saw a lot of people trying to defend John, Juwan Howard. Obviously, most of them Michigan fans say, well, you can't. When, when someone says to keep your hands off you, you got to do that because where I come from, blah, 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 a bunch of bully stuff like that. Well, first of all, he didn't say keep your hands off me until after the guy had touched him. Uh, and secondly, if that was really the issue, why didn't you hit Greg Gard right then? Why did you wait until you know, several seconds later when there was you know, four or five people between you and another coach and you hit another coach who had not touched you at all? So it was all crazy. Jawan Howard showed no remorse whatsoever after the game about any of it and, and in fact, defended his actions. And then, uh, of course, the uh, uh, Michigan AD came out with an apology. The Michigan president came out with an apology. Now the Big Ten has suspended Jawan Howard for five games, which is effectively the rest of the regular season. He'll be able to coach again in the, in the NCAA tournament. Uh, and – at that point, now Jawan Howard says, "Upon reflection, I've decided that my actions were were not good, and I shouldn't have done that. And I'm sorry, and it was a mistake, and I'll never make that mistake again." Uh, which you know, he he has a little bit of a history here, uh, and it was more than just this one incident. Last year in a game against Maryland, uh, he got into a big argument with Mark Turgeon, and it, uh, according to Turgeon, who uh, Howard said to him, "I'm going to kill you." Um, so this is what we have, uh, people and, and people were defending all of this, uh, and defending when, when Juwan Howard said last year after the Maryland incident, I'm from the South side of Chicago. And when you threat somebody from the South side of Chicago, this is what you get. It's like, I well, don't care where, I, I don't care where you're from. Just one last thing. I don't care where you're from. You are in charge of, of young men. And when we saw what happened after you struck that assistant coach? That's when all hell broke loose. That meant that you were wrong. It doesn't matter what happened before that. You set this whole thing in motion. That could have been a horrible incident. People could have been hurt seriously. We could have had fans involved in all of that. There's all kinds of things that could have happened just because of the way he reacted. Listen, this is what happens on social media in the wake of, of, of these events is People rush to, A, you know, break these things down into frame-by-frame Zapruder-style analyses. Uh, There's rationalizations from people, obviously, who are emotionally invested in these teams. But the bottom line is this. This is a a post-game handshake line, and Juwan Howard was the coach of of a major college basketball program. You cannot... Whether you want to call it a punch, a slap, or try to, you know, snap a guy up by the neck, you cannot do that. Um, simply cannot do that. There is there is no rationalization. There is no explanation. I don't care what he said to you. You have to be, you are in a position of leadership, and you have to be able to tamp that down. That's what you, that's what... That's, that is part of your responsibility. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So, John Howard is it was in the wrong here, clearly. Um, I believe that the Big Ten was prohibited from, from uh, suspensions of more than two games. And I, I think, and, and I, I could be mistaken here, but I think the five-game suspension 
was an institutional punishment that, that Michigan actually handed down. Um, and I think, you know, in retrospect, it was it was certainly the writer call. I, I don't know what the, the absolute right call is. Do you do you did uh, you say writer call? The better call. <laughs> the writer call. Um, okay. Was on. it the best call? I don't know. Should a guy coach again this year uh, for doing that? I, I don't know. I, I was, well, we were talking about this. I, and I, I know in the pre show, we talked a little bit. So I remember an SEC tournament that I covered one year during um, the Hackashack days where Tennessee and, and I think Carlos Boozer were just abusing Shaquille O'Neal. And at one point in time, Dale Brown ended up on the court, and I don't recall if he grabbed it Boozer or if he grabbed it Don DeVoe, but there was an ugly incident. And, um, you know, that was 30 years ago. I, I think you, you hark back to where we where we started this whole podcast about, you know, we're, we're trying to move forward. We're always trying to move forward. And and I think that the, the, the progressive view now is you can't do that kind of stuff. Not with everything televised, not with everything shown out there, and there's just no there's no excuse for for John Howard. I'm sorry, I don't care what anybody says, um, just it's just the wrong move. And 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 whatever suspension was handed down was, regardless of where it came from, it was it was the right move that he not coach again in a in a regular season game this year. Yeah, I wouldn't. Have, to me, I wouldn't have had a problem if they'd have fired him. That's okay with me. Uh, this there's been two incidents like this. You you. You hit somebody. That's inexcusable for a coach to do that. I can't even think of another time I can recall a coach hitting another coach. I mean, we had coaches hitting players and their own players and on some occasions hitting other players, and they got fired for those things, you know, or they should have been, you know, with if they weren't at the time. So, all right, well, one last thing before we get out of here. I want to talk about uh, this the Super Golf League that uh, Phil Mickelson was promoting in a kind of odd way. Uh, he was wanting people to get involved in this Saudi back league, uh, that's being, uh, led by Greg Norman. Uh, and he, he said, and, uh, he is quoted in a book by Alan Shipnuck saying that these are crazy MFers, uh, who, uh, who kill Khashoggi and, uh, and they can do all kinds of things and they, and you know, they're, they're bad people, but Hey, it gives me some leverage with a uh, PGA tour. So uh, I'm going to, uh, uh uh, run with this as far as I can. Uh, afterwards, you know, golfers don't ever say anything. You know, they're the, they're the most tight-lipped bunch you could ever imagine. Uh, they don't ever complain about anything. They'll they'll complain sometimes about you know the golf course if it's not in good shape. They've gotten a little it. bit chippier in some rivalries in the last year. Oh sure, two. Brooks yeah. Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau. That's been a little, little soap opera for the last few years. And that's that's true. Brooks Kepka and I would never. He, he's kind of like uh, – he says whatever he wants, and he's a big guy, so I think he thinks he can say whatever he wants. Um, but in this particular case, we had several ath- athletes, uh, several golfers, uh, led by Roy McElroy, who said that uh, Phil's comments were ignorant, idiotic, egotistical. Um, you know, had several other players said it. Justin Thomas also said that. Um, I think there were a couple of others who came forward. Uh, they, they were all very quick – to say that Phil was crazy for the things that he said. Uh, and one of the things that Roy McElroy said was that Tiger came out in favor of, of, of us staying with the PGA Tour, so that's what we're doing. Uh, Tiger's not even playing anymore, and yet he still swings the biggest hammer uh, in this group, which is interesting to me. Uh, and I think this shows a little bit of what the opinions were about Phil Mickelson among the uh, rank and file. 
Because frankly, if they all loved Phil and thought he was great and thought he was just kind of off the wall with this, they would say, well, these were unfortunate comments. We wish that Phil hadn't said all this kind of stuff, but that's not what they said. Uh, the, the, the comments that they had were frankly shocking uh, to say about a fellow golfer who had never publicly anyway seemed to have a bad relationship with any of these guys. There's people now who feel like that, for one, the PGA Tour may ban Phil at this point. I think that'd be bad uh, publicity to do that. But it'll be interesting to see uh, what the relationships are like on the on the golf course going forward after this. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a whole lot on this, Kevin. Um, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I, you know, I, it just comes across as, as – Phil being greedy, and I feel like we've spent this most of this podcast talking about, and, and I, in, in large respect, I feel like the last couple months we've we've spent most of the time talking about what's wrong with uh, with sports today, and Phil's Phil's greediness is certainly, I guess, uh, another another one of the great sins out there. I, and s- since we're just talking in, in biblical sins and commandments and all that stuff. I'm just going to do a 180 and, and leave the podcast with this. Um, wrote a column that I think was in print today and, and was online yesterday about Dallas Baptist baseball program. And to me, that's one of the good stories in sports. Um, small school, Dan Hefner does a really good job down there. Um, they've, they've become a, an actual Goliath. And that's one of those things that, you know, after listening to sexual harassment and cover up, um, greed, corruption in the Olympics, um, labor problems in baseball, and uh, a coach punching another coach. I'm just going to leave it at that, that there's, there's still some good stories out there, and there, there, there's still some good things to root for. Um, and uh, that was my appreciation of sports for the week, that the, the Dallas Baptist program, I think, does deserve more eyes on it. Yes, it does. And they, they do some good things out there. No question about that. All right, that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, next week, we, we might even have uh, David Moore and Callie Kaplan back uh, to, to talk some more. But, you know, the problem with them being here is that we don't get to talk as much. So that's that was kind of good. Just a, a, I'm, I'm still working to try and the, – the, the, my goal is to get to the episode where I get rid of you and it's just me for 45 minutes. Wow. Well, y- y'all will know that. I want that on record because cause one of these days I'll be dead and I want y'all all to investigate that to make sure that Evan was not at the bottom of it. Okay? Remember I, that, listeners. Investigate. Don't let that go. Don't accept the fact that I just died peacefully in my sleep. What you'll find out is that Evan was standing over me with a pillow. So, at any rate, that's going to do it for for us this week. Make sure to check out everything we do here and everything that's in the Dallas Morning News. We appreciate it. We love you. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Bye.